0: Welcome to the St. Matt's 6pm podcast, where you can listen to sermons from our evening service. This message, preached by Chris, is called Hope in Humility. It looks at Daniel chapter 4 as part of our Hope Against Hope series. Does anyone remember Coney 2012? All right, that's what some of you remember. That's okay, I'm going to explain it to you anyway. It was a campaign by an NGO in 2012 uh, aimed at increasing awareness of a Central African warlord named Joseph Kony. Yeah, now, All right, great. This, this campaign was done in the hope that it would raise more awareness and lead to either the arrest or the death of Joseph Kony. Kony has committed innumerable crimes against humanity, especially around kidnapping children and making them child soldiers in his militia. The video that launched Kony 2012 became that year the most viral video of all time. And I was one of those young people caught up in this sense of optimism that we could use technology and pressure on our national governments to bring change and justice to a part of the world that desperately needed justice. But in the coming weeks, many of us started to slow down and move away from the initial enthusiasm and start to ask deeper questions. Just how did we expect our governments to stop Joseph Kony? How were they supposed to forcefully liberate the children from his army that would be literally fighting on Kony's behalf if they were to intervene? And I remember feeling this horrible sense of hopelessness. This was unprecedented buy-in right around the world to bring justice This was so much energy, so much awareness, and it wasn't actually able to address the complexity around Kony at all. I realized we couldn't hold him to account. And seven years on, while Joseph Kony's power base has shrunk dramatically, uh, he remains at large, and there are no governments actively seeking his arrest. Kony's just one example among so many leaders that have never had to give an account for how they've used their power. I remember when John Haddon and Pat Sutton came back from Zimbabwe earlier this year and they were sharing that Zimbabweans felt like things had gotten worse under the new regime since Robert Mugabe died. I thought, oh my goodness, how could it be worse? How could there still be no accountability? There are many more, warlords, generals, prime ministers, presidents and sovereigns that haven't been forced by others to give an account for what they have done. And it's possible to look about our world and conclude that that's just the way things are. The powerful act with impunity. They will not be held to account. But the message of Daniel 4 disagrees. Those who walk in pride, God is able to humble. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you've got to teach us because without you we have nothing. We can't affect change on our own. We have no hope apart from you. So fill us with hope from your word this morning and transform us through it. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week in Daniel 3, we saw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego brave the furnace because they knew that even in death, and ye, ruin my reputation, destroy my life and my family. The authorities are capable of doing all these things. However, no one in this world can force me to renounce my faith. Last week we were thinking about the victims of sin, but this week Daniel 4 encourages encourages us to consider the other side of the coin. Last week was about those who are hurting. This week we're thinking about those who do the hurting. If Daniel 3 encouraged us to consider Wang Yi, Daniel 4 encourages us to consider those authorities who have arrested him for following Jesus. Daniel 3 showed us how God relates to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But Daniel 4 shows us how God relates to the one who threw them in the furnace. How he relates to King Nebuchadnezzar. So going back 2,600 years, uh, 600 BC, thereabouts, to Daniel 4. And Nebuchadnezzar has had a dream that troubles him. A dream which no one is able to interpret. And if you're thinking, didn't we just do that a few weeks ago? Yes. Exact same plot. Uh, Again, Nebuchadnezzar has had a dream, and apparently he learned nothing from what happened earlier in his reign because he still doesn't know how to resolve it. He goes to all the astrologers and tries to get them to explain it. They can't manage. Eventually, he thinks of Daniel. This time around, he dreams of this mighty tree its branches reach up to the heavens. It's visible from the edges of the earth, and it provides fruit and shade for all the creatures of the earth. Then along comes a messenger from heaven who decrees that that tree is to be stripped down, cut down, left as a stump. The messenger goes on to say, let him be drenched with the dew of an- heaven and let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man and let him be given the mind of an animal till seven times pass by for him. Now this this. Recurring, recurring worrying over his dreams might give us the impression that Nebuchadnezzar is this weak-minded, easily frightened kind of hand But this is not Nebuchadnezzar. We actually know quite a bit about Nebuchadnezzar from history outside of the Bible. And he is not weak. You know, before he was even king, when he was still the crown prince, he led a military campaign where he shattered the Assyrian Empire and he defeated the armies of Egypt. Nebuchadnezzar got things done. He became king later that year, and then he ruled over Babylon for over 40 years, turning it into this world power where he himself became the most powerful man in the world. And not only did he establish his nation as a world power, he stunningly rebuilt the city of Babylon. If you've been to some of the great museums of the world, you've probably seen some of the remains from his building works. Nebuchadnezzar gets things done. He is this man that knows how to use power. But this dream, it troubles him. He's frozen. He knows it's not an ordinary dream. And he just wants someone, anyone to tell him what it means. Finally, he remembers Daniel, the one who interpreted his last dream. And he calls Daniel in. He tells Daniel the dream. And now Daniel is troubled and fearful. I imagine he doesn't really want to explain what the dream means. But Nebuchadnezzar insists Daniel explain the dream to him. So Daniel starts with the tree. Verse 22. Your majesty, you are that tree. You have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky and your dominion extends to distant parts of the earth. It's a big deal to call Nebuchadnezzar the tree. If I can just get my nerd on for a second, let me explain to you why. Uh, In ancient Near Eastern mythology, there's this recurring myth of a giant tree. that's branches reach the heavens, that is planted in the earth, and that's roots go down to the netherworld, to the realm of the dead. And this tree, because it connects the heavens and the earth and the netherworld, in these ancient cultures, it's seen as this symbol of divine cosmic order. So the tree kind of holds together the universe. That's the tree's role. And Daniel's saying, in your dream, that's you. And Nebuchadnezzar's thinking, great, I mean, this just suits his ego perfectly. But Daniel goes on, this tree is going to be cut down. Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar that he is going to lose his sanity. He's going to be driven away from people and live with animals until he acknowledges that God, the God of heaven, the God of the conquered Jews, is sovereign over all. Daniel at this point boldly implores Nebuchadnezzar to listen to his advice. Daniel says, renounce your sins by doing what is right, and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be then that your prosperity will continue. But Nebuchadnezzar disregards Daniel's advice because, of course, he does. Why should the most powerful man in the world, this mighty tree of life, concern himself over the dream threats of some random god whom Nebuchadnezzar has already conquered. But 12 months later, the dream comes true. As Nebuchadnezzar stands on top of the beautiful palace he had rebuilt, admiring the proof of his own glory, the curse from heaven is repeated. Nebuchadnezzar loses his sanity, and is driven away from association with people. But by God's grace, that's not the end of the story. Uh, We don't know how long passes, but a period of time passes before finally he does what Daniel called him to do in the first place. He turns to heaven, acknowledging the God who has always been in control, whether or not Nebuchadnezzar actually could see it. And in this astonishing act of mercy, This uncomfortable act of mercy. God restores Nebuchadnezzar to the throne of Babylon. I don't know if you feel a little uncomfortable with that, but when I look at who Nebuchadnezzar is and what he's done, that kind of mercy just grates. But now with feeling, Nebuchadnezzar is able to warn others. Those who walk in pride, God is able to humble. That's Daniel 4. I think it's actually tempting to read Daniel 4 and see that little conclusion at the end, and make it a really easy moral story. Pride comes before the fall. We know how this story goes. But God has so much more to offer us than simplistic morals. So let's dig a little deeper into what's going on. I don't think God takes Nebuchadnezzar's sanity away simply because he was proud. If we look at Nebuchadnezzar in the first four chapters of Daniel, we see at least three behaviors that express his pride, but that result in his condemnation. And I think they're pretty easy to remember. No good, no gratitude, no God. Number one, no good. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't use his authority for good. As the most powerful man in the world, he has this unprecedented capacity to do good for people, to bless others. And that's what Daniel calls him to do. Renounce your sins by doing what is right, and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. But what does Nebuchadnezzar care for the oppressed? Thousands and hundreds of thousands have died to pay for his ambition. I don't think it's coincidence that he is struck down while admiring his works from the top of this beautiful palace built by slave labor. His power has been wholly directed towards blessing himself at the expense of others. No good. Number two, no gratitude. It's not wrong that Nebuchadnezzar is powerful. It's not wrong that he's rich, but it is wrong for him to think that he owes God no thanks for the blessings he has received. Three times in Daniel 4, we are reminded, the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms of earth, and he gives them to anyone he wishes. No good, no gratitude. Number three, no God. Nebuchadnezzar elevates himself too far. He holds himself up as the ultimate authority. If you were here last week, remember in chapter 3, when he asked Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, he says, if they don't obey him, then what God will be able to spare you from my hand? Do you hear that? What God could compete with me? That's how far he's exalted himself. He can think of himself as the tree bridging heaven and earth and the netherworld, holding together the universe. Nebuchadnezzar wants to seat himself on the ultimate throne and answer to no one. But that throne belongs to another. The Most High has reserved that throne for someone else. If there is one who can truly be the tree, if there is one who bridges heaven and earth and the realm of the dead, it's not Nebuchadnezzar. It's the one who came from the glory of heaven to earth to live as a man. It's the one who in loving gratitude perfectly served God, who poured himself out for the good of others. It's the one who died a sinless death for sinful humanity, who went down to the dead and conquered death and rose again to earth and finally returning to heaven. You know who this is. This is Jesus Christ. And God has reserved the ultimate authority for him. How dare Nebuchadnezzar think he can even approach that throne, let alone sit on it. Only Christ can be king. And so Nebuchadnezzar is struck down for thinking he can sit where only Jesus is worthy to sit. That he's worthy to carry the mantle that only Jesus can shoulder. Only Christ can be king. Once again, God shouts to us from Daniel. God will not turn a blind eye when leaders abuse their power to commit evil. He does not overlook their selfish ambition. He does not forget their ingratitude. He does not excuse the offense they give to Jesus Christ in attempting to usurp his throne. Joseph Coney may not have to give an account in this life to his crimes, but he will face the judgment throne of Christ. Wang Yi, the Chinese pastor, he might not be released. And the leader of China... Xi Jinping may continue to get away with persecuting Christians at a level that we haven't seen since the 70s. For now, he might get away with that. But if he does not turn to heaven and repent, he also will face the judgment throne of Christ. Only Christ can be king. And I'd love to leave it there and just point the finger at the evil out there. But surely this has truth implications for us too, right? When I think of no good, no gratitude, no God, I see myself too. We might not have as much power as Nebuchadnezzar, but it's a lie to pretend we have no power, no abilities, no influence. It's foolish to think that we don't have a responsibility to use our power well. Too often, whether out of fear or selfishness, or apathy, I hoard for myself my power, my influence, my capacities, my wealth, my time, rather than use those things for the good of others. If we are blessed, it is so that we might be blessings. Too often I don't thank God for what he's given me. Too often I overlook my own privilege and I give myself the credit for the blessings in my life forgetting what Paul asks in 1 Corinthians, what do you have that you did not receive? Too often I live as though I'm the king of my life, kidding myself that I'm accountable to no one. But only Christ can be king. Only Christ can be king of the cosmos, and only Christ can be king of our hearts. Our greed, our selfishness, our apathy, our pride, our sin, it may not be as dramatic, maybe not as gross as that of Nebuchadnezzar or the other leaders of the world. But nevertheless, we too will face the judgment throne and have to give an account. So what do we do? We heed the story of Nebuchadnezzar and we follow his example. We humble ourselves and acknowledge that we've also done wrong. We might be the victims of sin, but we've also been the perpetrators of sin. We don't try to hide it or excuse it. We repent, that means we we turn away from our self-centered lives and we ask Jesus to rule in our hearts instead. That, like him, we might live for good with gratitude under God. We raise our eyes to heaven and acknowledge the true king because only Christ can be king. And what I've just described is how somebody becomes a Christian. If you've never never done that, if you've never admitted your wrongs and asked Jesus to take over your life and be your king, heed Nebuchadnezzar's warning and talk to somebody about this today. If you've already done that, it doesn't actually change. That was the first step of what is now a pattern. Keep doing it again and again. As we began as Christians, so we continue as Christians, reminding ourselves to get Off the throne. Because only Christ can be king. And here's the astonishing thing about Jesus. Though he once denied him, though he once tried to steal his throne, he doesn't leave us there humbled in the dirt. Just as God astonishingly raised up Nebuchadnezzar, Jesus raises us up. Not as kings and queens, perhaps, who sit on the throne. Not as the ultimate authority, but still, he raises us up as princes and princesses, as his brothers and sisters, as members of his royal family, sons and daughters of the Most High. When we give up our selfish ambition, he gives us more than we ever aspired for. What an amazing sovereign we serve. And gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. In heaven, and on earth, and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. Only Christ can be King. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we simultaneously want to delight and cringe. We thank you so much that you are king and that you will hold evildoers in our world to account. Lord, we pray that we would continue to find shelter in you. That we'd humble ourselves before you and let you be our king. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's sermon St. Matt's West Bend Hills Congregation is a collection of people who want to be changed by Jesus to have a deeper connection with God deeper community with one another and deeper concern for our world We'd love you to join us on a Sunday soon For all the details check out our website at stmatt's.org.au. And be sure to subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss a sermon.